You guys hear me all right? Okay, I have got to say something. After we left out of here last week, I kicked myself in the butt all the way home. And, and, and I think that I talked around this enough that I didn't just leave it hanging out there, but i got to say this. Last week, I started off the message with three points about the problem with the text. And I, I left out something really important. You see, the problem with the text is never a problem with the text. It's always a problem with us. If you guys think back, it was actually two weeks ago, I talked about, we, we looked at where Jesus changed the water to wine, and, and I talked about that the, the problem with the text was we, we get hung up on the issue of alcohol. The problem with the text is that, that I, and I don't remember the exact points now, but ultimately, the problem with the text is not the problem with the text. It's a problem with us. And, and we get to this place, we come to this place when we come to Scripture that we tend to decide what Scripture says. We want to we stand over Scripture and say what it proclaims rather than sit and listen and hear what it's proclaiming to us. We, we want to decide and, 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 and cause Scripture to mold around our perspectives and our views rather than let God show His perspective to us. And so as we come to Scripture, we, we, we need to be careful that we're not, we're not sticking and stopping at a certain place and not allowing us to gain the full, the full effect of God's Word. And tonight's going to be the same issue. Tonight we're coming to a passage that probably most of you have heard preached on or taught on in small group settings. That you've heard it before. And in fact, I'll just give you a hint. It's the, it's the uh, when Jesus comes in and clears the temple. You know, he, he comes in and sees this stuff going on and He kicks these people out of the temple. Have you heard, have you heard about this? Have you read it? Well, I saw a cartoon this week and I don't know why this popped back into my head, but I saw a cartoon this week that said, Jesus clears the temple, and it showed Jesus on a skateboard flying across the top of the temple. It's kind of funny, but anyway. <clears throat> uh, I, it made me laugh. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, so, so we're coming to this passage tonight, but the problem we have when we come to a passage like this is that we get hung up on issues that we deal with. If you were to name... If, if you could name the central theme or the central topic that you've heard taught on out of that passage, what would it be? Come on, you can talk back to me. Remind yourself of what happens. Jesus comes into the temple. He comes into Jerusalem at Passover. Walks into the temple. Sees all these people selling and, and trading. And He wraps up some cords and He starts whipping and saying, Get out. Turn my house, my father's house, into a marketplace. Is what he says in John. So, if you were to if you were to wrap that up in one word, what do you think it would be? Come on, anybody. One word. Anger. Yeah. You know, as I prepare, I always listen to to people's messages just to make sure that I'm not too far off base. But sometimes I don't agree with much of what I what I hear. So. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully I won't steer you guys too far wrong tonight. But the issue of anger, we come to that, and it, this may not be your issue. It may not be something you get hung up with. You know, you may not be an angry person and just mad all the time. But but a lot of people want to come to this and they want to use it as justification that I can be angry. Well, Jesus got angry, so if Jesus got angry, it must be okay if I get angry, right? Well, I, I think that that totally misses the point of the passage. I think that that totally takes it out of context. And so tonight, as we as we talk tonight and we look at the passage, I just want us to 
to get past that. I want us to, to, to understand that if that's what we get when we come to this passage, we've got a problem. We've got a problem, but the problem is not with the text. We've got a problem because we want, it, we want to fold it around our views. We want to fold it around our perspective. And tonight, I, I hope that we can gain something much more important and much deeper than that. And so, um, with no further ado, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 12, um, and we'll go through this. <laughs> I guess I need to turn their feet. Okay, he says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those he sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, I want, I want to just bring some attention back to that last passage, the last couple of verses in that, before we get into the rest of the text. Where we finished, when we were speaking about Jesus changing the water to wine, Jesus was, was changing the water to wine, but to, but to focus too intently on the miracle itself is to miss the fact that at the end of that passage, John writes, thus, Jesus revealed His glory. And so to focus too intently on the miracle misses the man that worked the miracle. And so we've always got to come to this place where we understand that, that Jesus is the one that does these things. Are they great and are they amazing? And, and do they just get us excited to know that He's working and able to do these things? Absolutely. But never take your eyes off of Jesus. Never, I, I guess I would encourage you to, to come to Jesus, not just for what He can do, but because of who He is. You see, so often as we come to Christ, we, we think about what we need and, and what we can gain and what we can get. But we need to come to Christ with hearts broken and submitted in obedience and worship because He is the Creator God. He is the, the, the Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our friend. And so, so I encourage you as, as we go through this to remember that, that as we'll talk about some things that deal specifically with us tonight, I talk about these not to try and make you a better person or make you, um, although I, I'd love for you to be better people, um, we all need work, but more so that we can stand before Jesus. And, and and see him smile. You know he's accepted us where we're at. He's he's loved us right where we are. But he never leaves us in the same place. 
and He pulls us and He draws us and He sanctifies us and He, he cleanses us. He makes us new. So never take your eyes off of Jesus. Never take your eyes off of Jesus. So we go back to the beginning of the passage and we see Jesus. He's gone down to Capernaum. He's worked this miracle. He's done this miracle with the water and the wine. He goes down to Capernaum. This kind of becomes his, his uh, home base. And so he stays there for a few days. He's with his wife. His, or not his wife. <laughs> Sorry. Strike that. His mother. I was thinking of you, Amy. He was with his mother, his brothers, <laughs> his mother, his brothers, and uh, his disciples. He's got a following of about five now. We saw those five come to him and, and begin to follow him. Um, just so it's clear, I know Jesus never had a wife. It's okay. Anyway, so he, he's there with them, and the Passover's coming. Now the Passover and the week that follows is one of three holidays that all Jewish men were expected to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus, being a good Jewish man, gets up and goes to Jerusalem. And, and I, just imagine this. I mean, this, this city at this time was just chock full of people. We know that at Pentecost, you know, that was 50 days after Christ ascended into heaven. We know of a Passover celebration that brought people in from not just all around the region, but they were coming from different countries and they were speaking different languages so that when the Holy Spirit began to or, or baptize those apostles and they began to speak, people were hearing them in their own languages. So we know that this city's just chock full of people, just all over the place, full of people. And so I want you to get that in your mind because as Jesus walks in and he comes to Jerusalem and then goes into the temple, this isn't, this isn't just uh, another day in the temple. This isn't just, well, this is another Sabbath day. This is a special Sabbath day. And there's, I mean, just hundreds, probably thousands and thousands of people. And so he walks into the temple and he sees this, this temple full of animals. They're mess, they're stenched. People selling and buying money changers, changing money. And, and it, <clears throat> he walks in, in into this and it... This is no small thing. He doesn't walk in and have three or four people that he's got to deal with. The, the, the whole court is full. In fact, I got, a, I got a picture. Let me show it to you. It's a terrible color, but, but ultimately, this area right there, that whole area right there, this is the temple proper. You have the court of women, the court of Israelites, and then you've got the Holy of Holies inside of there. But right through here, and then on the edges here, is the court of Gentiles. That whole area was full of people selling and trading. And, and the problem was that the thing that got him was not so much just the selling and trading, although I think that was a big part of it, but people were getting ripped off. They were getting cheated. See, what would happen is that the command was for Passover was that every Israelite, every, every Jew was to bring their sacrifice with them from their own flock. This was supposed to be a sacrifice, something that cost them, something that they had put effort into, something that meant something to them. More than just, let me buy a dove. Let me buy a lamb. But they were, instead of bringing these things, they'd come into the temple and they'd lay down their money and they'd buy whatever was there. Now on the other side of that is 
not just the people coming in and buying this stuff. On the other side of that, you have the priests and the, and the Levites and the guys working in there. And ultimately, they're charging like exponential amounts over what they're really worth. It's kind of like going to Silver Dollar City. You know the nickname, Silver Dollar City. Steal your Dollar City. Why do we call it that? Because you go in, they got you, and they're going to charge you, I don't know, like five bucks for a soda. You know, I, something silly. Well, that's what would happen is that these people would come in and, hey, we got you now. If you're going to, if you're going to offer a sacrifice, you're going to pay for it. So I guess it did cost them something in the end, but ultimately they're, they're missing out on the raising of it and attending to it and the, and, and the year-long process of, of this unblemished animal uh, being raised and, and being a, a part of their, their household in a sense. But you've got these guys selling this stuff and, and they're, they're ripping off everybody that comes in. But the, the thing was, was, hey, you can't just come in and buy stuff with your money. You've got to change your money. You've got to, you've got to come in and, and, and exchange your money for some temple money. Well, the temple money, what they would do is they'd take their money, they, they'd take the, the worshiper's money, for lack of a better way to say it, they, they'd take the Jew guy, Jew, Jewish guy's money and they'd exchange it for temple money. Well, what would happen is, is that Jewish guy would take his new temple money, go over to buy his animal, he'd give it to the merchant, he'd give it to the guy he's buying stuff from, and they would take that money and just recycle it. You see, there's really no value to that money. Because as, as he pays off the merchant, the merchant then turns and hands it to the people that are just changing it back out. And so they're taking all this money in, and they're, they're, they're making all this wealth, by ripping off people who are coming to Passover. And in fact, it wasn't just Passover days. It was happening every Sabbath. It was happening every time people brought these animals or, or, or came to worship. And so Jesus comes in and he sees that and boom, he's angry. Now, we do have to talk about anger just a little bit. Is he justified in his anger? Absolutely. You see, we come, we, we got this picture of Jesus as timid, compassionate, friendly, loving. And don't get me wrong, that's the real deal. But we often forget about the anger of Jesus. You see, we don't want to think about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he finished that creation, he saw that it was very good. Exactly as he meant it to be. Exactly. I mean, it's perfect in its form and, 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 and everything was exactly as he wanted it. A man and woman fall into sin. They make a decision to, to exalt themselves as God, to ignore his command. And oftentimes we forget about the wrath. You see, that's what this is such a, an amazing picture of. And, and I don't, it's not easy to deal with. It's not easy to think about. But the reality, reality is, is that Jesus comes to the temple. Now, I, I believe full well that he already knew what he was going to see. This wasn't the first time Jesus was at the temple. When he was 12 years old, he'd been at the temple. Chances are, if he, if he was following the Jewish laws, he was at the temple every Passover. Why this was different... I'm not completely sure, maybe because now his public ministry started. But I, I, I'm sure that he knew full well 
what he was going to experience, what he was going to see. And as he walks in, he's not surprised by the fact that these people are being, being sinful. But it's time to confront them. It's time to show them. It's time to deal with them. And sometimes in our world, in our culture, we don't want to think that way. We don't want to deal with that. We, we prefer to just overlook it. And you know, there's, there's times to love people past their sin. Don't, don't hear me say there's not. But I believe that there are times that we need to be angry. And in fact, if we don't get angry or aren't bothered, aren't, aren't, aren't torn up inside about something, that maybe we've got a problem beyond not being angry. I talked to somebody just recently that was molested as a child. That makes me angry. It makes me angry to hear a story of someone who's abused by her husband. That makes me angry. It's terrible. It's pitiful. If it doesn't bother us, there's something wrong. Do we really care? It makes me angry to hear people that say they're Christians honor God with their mouth, but live a life that demonstrates their hearts are far from it. It really bothers me. It drives me nuts to sit and talk to people at church and see them in their life. Two totally different people. It bothers me. If it doesn't bother you, you need to think about that. You see, there's, there's reasons not to get angry. I mean, it's probably a sin to get angry and flip somebody off because it cuts you off in traffic. You know, that's probably wrong. It's, it's probably wrong to get angry because things didn't go your way. I've never flipped anybody off in traffic. Is that what you're laughing about? Okay. I thought about it. It's probably angry, or, or it's probably wrong to be angry because the things that you've got in your mind and the things that you want and the, the perspectives that you have aren't held by everybody else. And the difference is, is that that anger is centered around you. It's all self-centered. There's a difference between being angry and, and being angry because people are, are suffering injustice or God's glory is not being shown. And ultimately, that's what drove Jesus to anger. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But, but <clears throat> he comes in and he's absolutely right to be angry. I mean, why, why would he be justified in it? Well, let's think about it. I've got three things that, that just I, I think that make all the sense in the world and put it all together. Why, why it's okay for him to be angry here. Think about where this occurred. Where did it all happen? In the temple. What was the purpose of the temple? Worship. You know, this was the point where God came and was on the earth. This is, this is where it all happened in the Holy of Holies. This is where He made contact with His people. And so people came here to hear about God and understand where He was moving and how He was working. This was His spot. And it was being defiled because of greed or laziness or whatever reason. This is the temple. His special place. That, that place, you know, 
For so long, he had had a, a tent, a tabernacle that was moved from spot to spot. And David had this desire to build this, this amazing temple, this amazing place that God could be, could be housed if, if, if he could be. And, and this place was, was to be, it was to be that place that everybody came to, to, to see and understand or at least to meet and hear about the God who created the universe. And didn't just create the universe, but work with the people and work in the lives of the people who had rebelled against him. And so that first temple, that, that temple gets destroyed. And, and <clears throat> then along comes, along comes a group, group of people and they rebuild this temple. Well, then, <clears throat> then uh, Herod, sorry, Herod comes along and expands on this temple. And for 46 years, they've been working on this temple. And, and, and making it spectacular and, and making it beautiful and, and amazing. And Jesus walks into it and it's being defiled. It's being, it's being abused. I, I think he had a right to be angry. What happened? What was, what was going on? What was happening? People were being cheated. They were being taken advantage of. You know, on, on top of that, their worship was being short-circuited in a sense. The whole idea of the sacrifice didn't start at the moment that you offered it. It started a year before. As, as they raised those animals and they tended to them and they worked with them and they put their life into them. The sacrifice was, was not something just to be bought and, and, and a second thought. Was to be meaningful. David gives us the example. King David gives us the example when he comes to the threshing floor and the guy says, Here, it's yours. He says, No. I can't take anything. I can't offer anything to my God that costs me nothing. These people, whether it was the fault of the priests and the Levites and the merchants or the fault of the worshipers themselves, their worship was being short circuited. Meaningless. It's empty. Now, who was it? Who was it that was that Jesus was angry at? The religious people. Uh oh. The people who who should have known better. The people who, who knew who God was, who had been shown God over and over and over and over again. The people who had His Word, who had His law. The people who were told that through them, God would bless the whole world. But they've been so short-sighted that in the court of the Gentiles, People who weren't Jewish, people who didn't belong to their to, to, the, to their to their way of life. These people, all of a sudden, their place in the temple was removed so that they could sell and make money. All of that, and so the religious people are totally misleading the rest of the world. They're totally giving up on the rest of the world. They're they're totally messing up the whole mission of God. They're not doing and acting in the way that he had had them to act. So was it 
justified that Jesus got angry? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, a couple of different perspectives on this. A couple of different things that, that could be said as, as, as I try and put this together and then, and then bring application to our lives. As I studied, I, I found two different ways to look at this. You could look at the Jewish leaders, you could look at the merchants, and you could look at the businessmen who were making money in the temple, and you could blame it all on them. You could say, hey, those guys were ripping them off. They were, they were, they were uh, not being honest in their business. They were not doing it correctly. And maybe if they had been honest, Jesus wouldn't have been so mad. <clears throat> I mean, picture... This is, this is how you're picturing this. That whole section of the temple full of merchants. And one man, Jesus, with a whip, driving all these people out. I think he was pretty upset. Or, we could look to the other side, and we could look at the worshipers. The ones responsible to bring the worship, or, or to bring the sacrifice. Why in the world did they put up with it? Why, why, why didn't they say something? Why is it that when the priest, if, if they did bring a sacrifice, if the priest denied their sacrifice, and they could see that it had no, had no blemishes, and they knew that it was acceptable, they wouldn't stand up and say something. Why is it that all of this occurred? I think it's probably a mixture of both. You see, I think the things that were happening in that day, while I, you know, I don't want to interpret their cultures and their issues in light of ours, people have always been lazy and people have always been greedy. And I think that these merchants and these temple, uh, or, or, or these uh, uh, priests and Levites and the people that were ripping off the, the worshipers, I think they saw an opportunity to make money. And they did. Now what drove them to that, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they had this idea that Oh man, people aren't giving the way they used to. People aren't doing what they need to so we can keep this going. We're going to figure out a way to, to be, to make a profit. We're going to figure out a way to keep it going ourselves. But on the other side of it, on the other side of the greed, it's always easier to lay down a few bucks and put out the effort to do the work to make the sacrifice worth it. See, I, I don't have any, any problem standing up here and, 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 and saying that because it's always been true about people. As long as we've been fallen, we've been greedy and we've been lazy. And I guess ultimately what I, what question comes to mind now is how does that apply today? How does that, how does that impact us in the church today? What, what, what does that say for us today? Got a couple of perspectives there too. Back in the 1970s, there was a church growth movement that began. And church leaders got together and they began to look at ways just to build churches. Our numbers are dwindling. The church isn't having a, a, as large an effect in this in this uh, 70s druggy uh, peace man free love culture. It's just not doing the same thing. We got to do something. So this church growth movement begins. And it begins to grow. And, and, and today, here in 2008, we have some of the largest churches around the world. 
And I don't want to hear you. Hear, I don't want you to hear me saying anything bad about big churches. I'm going to say something on the other end of the spectrum in just a second. It's not the big church that's the problem. What they began to do, and what they've been doing, is selling out the truth to build a number. And you see this not so much in the building. You see this not so much in the service. But do you realize that we have the largest churches that our nation has ever known today? And yet we are more unchurched in our nation than we have ever been. There are more people that claim Christianity and have no idea what it is. But they claim it because their parents claim it. But they've never stepped in the church. We have, we have bigger churches with more, uh, more, more uh, resources and more movement and more, I mean, just some spectacular things. But there are shells of people sitting inside. On the other end of the spectrum, and I've got to preach in some of these churches, these churches that are sold out on only reading the King James Version, there's nobody that's, that's, you know, less than 70 years old. Dear sweet people, man, I think they love the Lord. There's not enough to reach the culture. They love the Lord just so long as their hymns are sung. It's nothing other than a piano and an organ. Yeah, I just heard that today. But as long as that's the way it is, Lord, we love Jesus. You see, you got these two ends of the spectrum. And it's still the same problem. It's still missing what God has intended for His people. You see, in this passage, we see that the temple is replaced. The temple begins to be, it's no longer that place that God's going to reside. See, Jesus says, He's angry because people are, 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 are being taken advantage of. He's, he's angry because people have, have done this to his father's house. But then he makes the point to say that when, when they ask for a sign, he says, if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And then it alludes to the fact he's talking about his resurrection. You see, he is now the place where God's residing. And then he's got this mission. That as he's built these five people, and as they come along, and others come along behind them, you heard the last couple of verses, it was all about people believe because they saw what he was doing. And as those believers come along, and that mission and that, that work begins to grow, Jesus is doing his work. Because now you don't go to the temple, or you don't go to a place, and, and that place is the only place that you can find God. We find God through Christ. And we find out in a minute that it doesn't stop there. But, but specifically, as it begins to play out in our lives, specifically, as it begins to take hold of not just who I am, but who we're becoming, I've got this line that I've just been dying to use. And I totally ripped it off, and you're going to know it. You already heard me say I ripped it off. But I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream of a church, <clears throat> a church that Jesus would smile on as he comes into our presence. 
Not one that he walks in and sees people taken advantage of and he wraps up a whip and begins to beat people and tell them to get out. But one that when he's here, he sees himself worship. He sees his father exalted and glorified. He sees people's lives being transformed. Not just the number of baptisms happening. I think that's important. But beyond the baptism, a sanctification begins to happen in a person's life that, that they're, they're, they're on drugs and they walk away from it. They're living in homosexuality and they walk away from it. They're, they're, they're wrapped up in alcoholism and they walk away from it. They're cheating on their taxes and they walk away from it. They live not for God's glory, but for the wealth, wealth that they can amass. And they walk away from it. I have a dream of a church that Jesus would smile on. Is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. If I'm involved in it, I can guarantee you it's probably not going to be perfect. But are we going to be striving? Yes. Are we going to be worshiping? Yes. Are we going to be glorifying God? Absolutely. Are we going to be telling others of the gospel? You better believe it. If that's not something that burns in your heart, it probably isn't for you. Because I'm going to challenge you with this every week. People need to hear the gospel. We gather as a church because of the gospel. Listen. I have a dream of a church in which the men stand up to lead in a Christ-like manner. Ladies, don't hear me ignoring you. Don't, don't hear me saying that you're not important or that you don't have a super special role. Because you do. I heard a statistic just recently that was shared from, from uh, George Barner. Uh, I don't agree with everything he's done in recent days, and I, I feel like I need to preface that with that saying. He did, he did a survey, and um, as he did that survey, he asked, this, he, he asked the question, or, or he, he looked at families where fathers and mothers came to Christ. When the mother came to Christ, 17% of the time, her family would follow him. When the Father would come to Christ, 90% of the time, the family follows. Men, whether you're married or single now, if you're going to be married one day, whether you're, whether you're always going to be single, you need to stand up and lead like Christ. That's how he designed it. That's how he put it together. Ladies, don't please don't hear me ignoring you. I say that I, I say that because of the culture we're in. I say that because because all of a sudden we place so much so much value on a role. It's not a role that gives you value. God gave you value. Each and every one of you are equal in His eyes. But he has put a plan into place. And it's our job not to write our own way, but to submit to his. So men, stand up and lead. Why, why are we doing men's nights at life point? Because we need to see what that's like. 
one of the first things that happens in a church almost always is the women's ministry starts. I can even use ours as an example. Before the men began to get together, the women already had a book club and were meeting. We've been dropping the ball. Time to do something about it. I have a dream of a church where men lead like Christ. First in their homes, next in this church, and then in their community. I have a dream of the church that's not so tied to the things of this world that we have to sell out. If we ever come to a place where we have to keep the machine running and we have to keep pumping the money in because if we don't, we're going to lose our building or go bankrupt, we are in a bad place and I've led you the wrong way. Don't let me do that. If you see it happening, say something quickly. Too often churches are in a place where they cannot make it if they don't keep filling the pews. And they can't keep filling the pews and speaking a tough and hard message, so they soften it. And they fill the pews. And not that I don't want lost people here. Don't hear me saying that. But life won't be changed by a false gospel. Nobody is going to be transformed by a false gospel. I have a dream of a church that sees Jesus at work not because He gave them a sign, but because we know already how He worked. I want you to think back on that passage. Jewish people who've been looking for the Messiah, who've been waiting for the Messiah to come, Jewish people, ask Him, well, what authority do you have to do this? What sign can you give us? I've been guilty of that. I flipped the quarter. You know, I've, I've thrown the dice. I've tried to figure it out. I've shot hoops. I mean, that's stupid stuff. But that's where we're immature. You see, we need people who grow and who know and who have walked with Christ in such a way that when He begins to work, they can point other people to it. And they can say, that's what Jesus does. Sometimes it's hard to take. Sometimes it comes with a whip. Sometimes it comes with compassion. That's what Jesus does. I have a dream of a church. We're going to go back one, Cameron. I have a dream of a church that gives generously so that God's name can be praised. What could have been different in the temple? If, if, if my conjectures are even close, and the people had not been giving and had not been doing what they were supposed to do. And, and these guys thought, man, we got to do something. we got to keep this place running. What could have been different if God's people had done what they've been called to do? Let me ask you a question in, in, in line with that. Who do you think is responsible to ensure that the world hears about Christ? We are. Do you think that a lost person should come in here and have to hear me talk about giving and, and, and give and give and give? 
if there's ever a lost person in this room or if there's ever somebody that that that, uh, that doesn't belong they don't need you the people who make up this church are responsible to see that God's word is spread that's our job And while we don't give animal sacrifices anymore and people will point to the tithe and say, that's Old Testament. Have you heard about the widow that Jesus praised? Because she gave everything. Everybody else was tithing. And he said, that's the example. Give it all. You see, that's the people that I dream of being in this church. Are we are we there today? I don't know. I, I, I'm fortunate enough now that some people have taken over counting the money and, and you know, I, I kind of know what's coming in. Don't, don't hear that, but I don't know who's giving what. I don't want to. Because I want to minister. I, I, I want to be your pastor. I want to shepherd you. And, 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 and I want sometimes to have to be able to say the hard thing and not worry about losing a pipe check. I don't ever want that. I don't want that temptation. So I don't want any part of accounting and understanding who gives what. But that's the people that I dream about being in this church. I have a dream of a church that fulfilled its mission as given by Christ to reproduce and grow, not simply in numbers, but in disciples. Not just in numbers. You are all disciples. And if you're not different today than you were six months ago, in some way. But I'm telling you. But I believe. I, I, I have no doubt as I've talked to people and as I've heard things said that there are changes happening in And people see the purpose and they see what's driving us and want to be a part of it. You see, the dream, the, 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 the dream, it, it may have begun up here and, and really it didn't begin here because it's not mine. I don't want to take credit for it. But it really starts with each individual sitting in the room. You see, the truth is that we can't be this church unless every last one of us and every person that we bring in is disciple to see to it that we are striving to become a church that Jesus smiled on. And this where this where it gets personal. Because the reality is we've likely got Pharisees. We've likely got money changers. We've, we, we've likely got the, the lazy worshipers sitting in this very room. I'm not saying that to be condemning. I'm just saying because it's probably true. I know I lean legalistically much of the time. God's grown a lot. God's shown me a lot of things. In, in recent months, in recent years. But I know there was a time that I counted my righteousness and my holiness because of how good I was. And I could look around and I could measure myself against all kinds of people. See, and, and, and then there's those money changers, you know, where, where they've got everything justified out in their mind to make it work just the way they want it. And then there's those lazy worshipers where I just find my way out. The truth is that Jesus has accepted every one of you right where you are, right, right where you're at. He's ready to work in you and make you new. 
But it begins there. It begins here. But how are you going to respond? How will you respond to what he's doing? Let's pray. Father, first I thank you for sending your son. Thank you for changing my life, for working in me. But I thank you that I'm not the only one. I thank you that there's people in this room who have testimonies that talk about the transformation you've made in them, whether it's from grotesque sin or, or whether it's just from the fact that we're all fallen. Father, I thank you that you've not left us alone and that you're walking ahead of us. I thank you that we can turn to you and count on you and trust in you. Thank you that you're building the church. And that while my words may speak of a dream and, and, and may encourage people to get up and move, thank you that the work being done is truly being done by you. First in us and then to us. I just pray that you bless this next coming week, Father, that you give us opportunities to share the gospel. Give us ways that we can shine your light brightly. Encourage us and give us boldness. Make, make us bold to step up and follow through. All these things I pray in Jesus' name.